welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates, December 2015. It's the last of the year, but the first UK broadcast. Yes, I'm here. I'm here. We are actually in the same room. We are sitting across from one another. This is very exciting. There's going to be some corpsing. I'm Sophie Mayer. I am a layabout hyphen film viewer for the month of December. And I am uh, writer hyphen uh, limey bastard Lee Zachariah. And unfortunately, we've not managed to secure any celebrity cameo guests because they were all working with Sofia Coppola. Yes, we do not actually have a guest this month. There was uh, another another complication, another wrinkle. I'm I'm sorry, this is this is happening just uh, right after you've uh, you've joined us. But that's cool because it can just be us. We can, uh, you know, this is our first face to face. This is literally our first face to face meeting. That's true. We met what 15 minutes ago when, yeah. I, when I turned up on your doorstep. We've already snorted the David Lynch coffee. Mm. So, yeah, the film of December 2015, because <laughs> it scared every other film off the release yep. date. There has basically been uh, been uh, one film, um, and I've forgotten its name. No, that's right, it's Star Wars, The Force Awakens. They've dropped the episode seven, perhaps, so as not to scare off the, the people who feel they need to watch the first six. But then they brought in J.J. Abrams, who is best known as the reboot guy. Mm. He's who they turn to to bring Star Wars up to, uh, sorry, Star Trek. This mm. is going to get really confusing. <laughs> Star Trek uh, up to date uh, and now to bring Star Wars up to date as well in line with the superhero reboot genre that has been going on for about five years. Mm. Yes, uh, he's, he's, and he's clearly got a love of Star Wars, unlike, Star Trek, which he openly admitted to not being a fan of. Really? Yes, he was like, yeah, no, I never really watched it. All right, you know, I'm glad you're now on the franchise you really wanted to be on. <laughs> no, I mean, the, 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 the force is deep with this one. Mm. The, the levels of in-jokes, references, nods to the fans. But at the same time, I think doing a pretty good job of bringing in the new viewers. We've got some new, yeah. young protagonists, some new worlds that are being explored, some new tech, as well as a lot of old faves. Was Star Wars a big part of your childhood at all? No. no. Okay. I um, have an unfortunate, unfortunate aversion to Ewoks and Wookiees, and ah. were, both of my brothers became totally obsessed with it when I was just really the wrong age. I was sort of 15, 16, and they were, mm. you know, 10, and I just thought, oh, what is this? So... Um, actually not a big part of my childhood. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I loved them as a kid, uh, the, the original three and, and it's the, the now very typical story of sort of falling out of love with the whole franchise, thanks to the special editions and of course the prequels and just sort of thinking, well, it's now, it's now turned into something that's not for me. Mm-hmm. And there was something about the trailers and the teasers for, uh, for, for Force Awakens that really, I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed this world. And there's something about the music and and the, I don't want to say the practical effects, but the fact that I actually felt like I was in a world the way you do with the first Star Wars. You actually feel like you're there. And so, yeah, I did go along with with a fair amount of excitement. Did it leap the bar for you? Well, here's the thing. I have a lot of problems with it. I think a lot of people have been saying this, but it is basically a retread of the original trilogy. It's the same sort of plot beats. I don't know why we need another Death Star. I don't know why none of the characters seem to have progressed. Um, Leia, who seemed to be on her way to becoming a Jedi, is still a general, and Han's gone back to the roguish smuggler. And we haven't progressed the characters. We've just taken them to a more familiar place. Uh, despite all of that, I really loved it. It does evoke 
such a uh, a sense of being in this world and the the new characters are brilliant i love ray i love finn i love poe uh i i love seeing harrison ford having fun again i look i i just like for all my problems with it and there are many i just enjoyed the hell out of it i I'm going to agree on the new characters. I loved Finn and Ray and Poe. They felt like very up-to-date contemporary characters, although Poe did feel like he was from Top Gun. But <laughs> it's the first time, and this is, you know, a totally heretical statement, but it's the first time I've really enjoyed Oscar Isaac oh, really? on screen. I think he has really natural comic timing. Um, he was very dashing. He wasn't taking himself seriously, whereas... So in Agora and even in Lewin Davis, I just felt like he was really po-faced and the irony of this character <laughs> is he's the complete opposite and he's not going the Tom Cruise and Top Gun route and it's not the full-on Starship Troopers parody. He just, as you say, all of the actors really look like they're having fun. They're really, even, even Carrie Fisher, who has sort of the most tragic story mm. uh, in the film, they, they look like they trust the director, they know where the character's going and they're having a really, a really great time and... Um, Daisy Ridley and John Boyega, you know, took on a huge challenge there, coming in as Ray and Finn into the biggest franchise of all time, and they just look like they're they're having a brilliant time. Even mm. you know when J.J. Abrams was clearly going, can we make Ray just sort of a little bit Hermione in this <laughs> in this battle with uh, Snape? <laughs> oh, I did not see that. Did you but... not get that the yeah. fight, the battle in the snow? It just seems so Hermione Snape. Oh uh, yeah, I can I can see it now. Um, totally. And yeah. I I really enjoyed Adam Driver's like super petulant performance. Mm. It's just like this really spoiled rat. I thought that again was a character that we had in not so much the dark side as the kind of tantrum side. In the tantrum side, but also someone who is on the dark side and worried that they're being seduced by the light side. I thought that was a, a really really great character. So bit. both Finn and and Kylo Ren create the biggest problem for me, which mm. is we now know there are characters, stormtroopers, people on the dark side who can come over to the light. And what does that mean when you then blow up a whole base yeah. of people who've been humanised? Uh, big problem for me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the old uh, Kevin Smith argument, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. The, uh, the, the, con the contract <laughs> the is in the yes. But this, is, this goes even deeper because Finn is such a key character in the film and his conversion is so complete. Mm. And that first sequence sort of leading up to his run mm. with Poe and landing on the planet and, and meeting Rey and convincing her to trust him... You know, you really feel like, okay, this is a new film, this is a film for the moment, this is a film for, you know, the sort of the Daesh generation, and it's mm. all about extremism and, you know, walking away and remaking your life. And then it's like, no, we're just going to go back into the old routine of, like, celebrating, mm. blowing shit up. Yeah. Um, with, like, this little climate change story in it. So I felt like it had all these really sort of cool beats that did make it feel very 2015. But then, as you say, it was sort of tacked on to this unchanged story from 1979. Mm, 77? Yeah. 77. 77. I mean, that, that's, it's interesting talking about the Dace generation because there's... I mean, the, the new uh, uh, Star Trek trailer came out recently, uh, which I love. Everyone seems to have a problem with the fact that there are Beastie Boys on the soundtrack, and I, I don't care. I, it feels like Star Trek to me. I'm all on board. But in that trailer and some of the commentary around it, talking about the fact that the Enterprise um, in the trailer doesn't get attacked by one other ship, gets attacked by lots of little mm -hmm. ships, and that idea that the enemy is, you know, you take out one and there are still a million more, which is a very modern idea. And I feel like they could have done something like that 
in Force Awakens because, you know, we kind of got the impression, or I did anyway, that the Empire had been destroyed in Jedi. And I wanted to see, all right, you're no longer the underdog. You've wrestled control of the galaxy back. What do you do? What are the problems? How do you how do you uh, deal with a uh, a place that has been under em- empire control for so long? Uh, but no, they're just they're, they're back to being the underdogs. They're back to being the rebellion in a sense. It's um yeah, I, and I think that's that's what bothers me a little bit is that as much as there was a huge part of me that was going yes, this is the Star Wars I remember. The other part of my brain was going yes, this is the Star Wars I remember. It's a, it's a classic American problem, isn't it? There's 10 million westerns and no films about the Reconstruction. Mm. So everything's always about the Civil War and the brave underdogs and pioneering and building the West. A little hint of what we might be talking about a bit later. Yes, yes. But no one wants to obviously make a film about the drainage problems of rebuilding Atlanta mm. and, you know, how do you, re- how do you integrate the nation and things like that. I feel like the, hung- the fourth Hunger Games film and Force Awakens shared a problem, which is it's very difficult to tell a story about a rebellion at a time when you know, the world powers, quote-unquote, specifically the US, are trying to confront what they see as an anti, you know, mm. us rebellion yeah. that's, that's going on, both in the Middle East and then domestic terrorism as well. So it's pretty difficult to tell a story about a rebel group that uses violence, whether that's, you know... Uh, led by Alma Coyne in in the Hunger Games, or led by General Organa in Star Wars, without getting caught up in a lot of you know we're supposed to hate that kind of behaviour and we're supposed to frown upon it. It's that image of the positive rebellion has changed a bit in the last few years, I think. Mm. And I, I think both films suddenly found themselves going <laughs> screeching to a halt about what they could what they could do with it. And I also feel like it does come to really dominate the second half of Force Awakens, that you're, you know, the beginning is the traditional being introduced to all these interesting new worlds and Maz Kanata's planet and massive props to Lupita Nyong'o for really characterising Maz Kanata and actually having something to do really briefly before her thousand-year planet of peace is completely trashed with no comment from anyone. Yes. Yeah, between uh, Force Awakens and Raiders of the Lost Ark, you just you wouldn't want uh, Harrison Ford to come drink at your pub, basically, because it's just it's not going to end well. No, <laughs> but I got to say the most exciting part of all of this is that they've re-established the world of Star Wars. They've introduced all these amazing new characters with interesting dynamics. And for all the eye-rolling at franchises that are set up to have 50 instalments down there, and I totally understand that, but it is kind of exciting to go, okay, we've, we've actually set something up here, and I, I do want to see where it, where it goes, I want to see how it unfolds, and I'm, I'm, I am excited for episode eight. And with BB-8, they've hooked five-year-olds, so mm. that's a franchise for at least another 25 years to come. True. And one 34-year-old. I, I love BB-8. You love BB-8. I love BB-8, yeah. He was not your George Binks. <laughs> he wasn't. <laughs> Uncar Pluck, another matter. Sorry? Uncar Pluck. Uncar Pluck. The, oh. the trader. Oh, the Simon the Pegg. The Simon Pegg cameo. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't know that was Simon Pegg, so I was just like... It's a guy. It's some character. <laughs> like it was only afterwards I found out that was Simon Pegg. It's like the Daniel Craig cameo. It didn't distract me because I didn't know it was them. So just so unnecessary. <laughs> you know, I could he 
phones up J.J. Abrams. He's like, come on, I'm a massive Star Wars fan, man. Come on, I was your right-hand man on Star Trek. Please, please. And J.J.'s like, well... There's this one prosthetic puppet character. I guess we could throw it to Peg, and then Peg improvises wildly on mm. set. And they kept referring to Uncle Clark. It, you know, there's clearly Peg must have something on on JJ Abrams. Maybe, but I, but again, not knowing it's him, it just felt like an, a character. Like if, if Peg had walked by looking like himself and gone, one space cornetto, please, and then winked into the camera. Like, sure, I would be like, come on, Simon. No, Peg. I would have preferred that. <laughs> So that was basically it for December. Every screen, 45 times a day, 3D, 2D, mm, virtual reality. I saw it in 70 mil. You saw it in 70? Yeah, I went down to the, uh, the uh, what is it, the, the Science Museum IMAX. Wow. Watched in 70 mil, very exciting. Well, actually, because there aren't a lot of films in December, we've taken, uh, uh, the next film we're going to talk about is one that came out ages ago in, in uh, the UK and hasn't come out yet in Australia. And while we navigate this uh, this tricky release date uh, uh, transition, uh, we are going to talk about Steve Jobs. The biopic of the man who killed Sally Lloyd Cinema. <laughs> yes, yes, speaking of 70 mil. Uh, yes, written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Danny Boyle. Uh, the second film about him, there was the, the Ashton Kutcher one, <laughs> Pause for hilarity. <laughs> Although having, having seen uh, pictures, of, like I'm not a huge Ashton Kutcher fan, but having seen pictures of a young Steve Jobs, I can I can see the casting. I can see why you why you'd immediately go to Kutcher for that. But uh, but yeah, Fassbinder looks a lot more like older uh, older Steve Jobs. But yeah, it's it's a fascinating idea. I love the idea of telling a story of someone's life in three distinct segments. And in this case, le- the, the minutes leading up to a product launch. The first one, a success. The second one, a massive failure. And the third one, a huge success. And just the panic and the, the energy that comes like moments before we're about to launch this big, big product. And I find that way in more interesting than the standard box-ticking biopic that makes every film look like Walk the Line or Ray. And and i got to say, like in terms of Sorkin's career, I, I find it really interesting that he did this... Uh, almost immediately after Social Network, because he's starting to develop this thing of examining the tech giants. He does, Sorkin does get accused, rightly or wrongly, of deifying anyone who's invented a thing or become famous for inventing a thing. Uh, I, I think what he's interested in is the sort of ironic juxtaposition of what if... Uh, someone with no social skills invented the world's biggest social network. What if someone who was profoundly imperfect created... or wanted to create the perfect uh, computer or machine or whatever. And I find that approach, that, that way in, really interesting. Um, what you, do you make of this? I've practically forgotten everything about it. <laughs> I thought the poster was very iconic. Mm. And that sounds like a really facetious comment, but it's not. I'm going to explain how. Um, the film, you know, Danny Boyle creates really strong images really strong ways of selling a film but then i found that the film itself it's very talky um it, I, for me it was more like the west wing than the social network it's a pedoconferencing backstage internal politics of a company internal politics of someone's marriage type film and it didn't have maybe what you could call the clean lines that you expect from apple and that's interesting because it's a film about how messy the behind the scenes 
work of creating things that look so perfect and streamlined are um and i agree that it's a it's a really fascinating way of thinking of a biopic is you take three similar staging points in someone's life and particularly Sorkin's fascination with the backstage thing and his thing about the backstage of media and how media is actually made which goes across his tv work and and film work um and this paradox of people who are imperfect and in fact incredibly bad at communications working on various kinds of communications technology whether that's hardware software or websites um but I th- I found the direction really pedestrian. Oh really? I've it, I don't know um, why. I thought it, there was some big, you know, Oscar winning, as in the Wayne's World sense of I kept expecting Oscar moments yeah, to flash yeah. up at the bottom of the screen, and that you know to me that's not Fassbender or Winslet's fault. I think they're relatively well cast, but the film really, because all the drama is happening in the language and the relationship, it really depends on these like huge moments of throwing papers off the table. And I just, I found myself, I guess because it breaks with the biopic tradition, thinking about, oh, what other kinds of, now that there are two biopics of Steve Jobs, what if it just became a franchise? And they were just like, <laughs> so I was thinking about Ramin Barani's biopic of Steve Jobs, the Syrian immigrant who's yeah. adopted and what did that mean for him and a much more personal family story and thinking about Vincenzo Natale's uh, biopic of Steve Jobs where it's just four people locked in a white box trying to invent a computer that's not a PC and Catherine Bigelow's kind of hurt looker examination of the machismo and you know his relationship with Johnny Ive um, and then that made me think of a sort of Steve McQueen one with Fassbinder and Cumberbatch mm. you know Cumberbatch as Johnny Ive kind of playing off each other um, that would examine sort of capitalism and imperial politics and I just found myself because maybe because of the structure it has this kind of repetition built into it mm. thinking about like okay so what is episode three in the I, I like this the Steve Jobs cinematic universe yeah can, the uh... Steve Jobs Rashomon yeah <laughs> <laughs> And then there'd just be an update every year. You know, you get a free a message on your Mac that says, mm. do you wish to, you know, upload the free update to the Steve Jobs biopic? You know, Steve Jobs <laughs> is a mountain lion. <laughs> Steve Jobs free climbing Yosemite. And because it, it, I think it, it does deify him and it does, mm. because they followed so closely on his death and because they're both so strongly related to the Walter Isaacson biography, it does feel like there's both this deification and this kind of, digital perpetuation of of Steve Jobs because they're supposedly the behind the scenes of these very well documented events and all of those Apple launches became such big media events and they're where our image of him come from mm. it did feel that you know at the end you might just get this digitally recreated Steve Jobs launching the Apple chip brain chip in mm. 2018 or whatever so I'm really I'm interested in that sort of spooky that spookiness and to me the film didn't quite have mm. enough spookiness it was very sort of grounded in this day-to-day business talk yeah yeah i think look i think my problem with a lot of biopics actually peter morgan is a good is a good example of this because peter morgan does tons of, of biopics and i loved damned united and frost nixon and then later found out how much had been changed Whereas with something like The Queen is, is a film I adore and I realize, and I still adore. And I think that the reason is that The Queen feels like he's openly admitting to have made most of it up, but he's examining something deeper, which is the, the, the idea of somebody being in this extraordinary position 
and how and what they think their duty is and how that duty is perceived. And that's a that's a very interesting story. Whereas I think so much of Damned United and Frost Nixon and, and special relationship are are sold on the you know you know they always emblazon based on a true story or inspired by true events because you watch it differently if you think it's real. You know, and that's it's an extra cachet. You get a lot more credit for a thrilling moment because you're telling the audience it's real. And that's a bit of a cheat if you're making up moments. Uh, and so if you're going to trade off that, it either has to be completely real, you know, and speaking of Danny Boyle, um, was that 120 something hours? What was it called? 127 hours. 127 hours, which is, you know, as it happened, or do what Steve Jobs does, which is it's obviously conflating events. Like there's no way the three most important moments with his daughter happened before these product launches. And I don't think the film expects that we're going to believe that, but uh, it's, it ties into a, into a more thematic story. Mm. And in, in, in that sense, I don't mind that he, he's messing with events and making stuff up because it's, it's patently obvious that he is. Uh, but to, but there is a, an end point. There is a, he's trying to achieve something by doing that. And, and I'll, I, I did go along with him on that. And even, and I was disturbed when I saw the trailers because as a huge Sorkin fan, I'd seen, I was just ticking off. Oh, I remember that line from the West Wing. Oh, I remember that line from Studio Six. Oh, the sports night joke. Right. You know, there's so much like he, he recycles like crazy. Uh, so I was a little trepidatious going into this film, but was completely sold. Um, so yeah, very much enjoyed Steve Jobs. I should say that we're both recording this on iPhones, so... Oh, God, we are, aren't we? Jobs lives on. That's <laughs> <laughs> for hyphen. It's sponsored by Steve Jobs. <laughs> uh, I'm sure mine will have stopped working because I dissed the film, although I think he probably wouldn't have liked it. I think, given his emphasis on perfection and he had mm. a falling out with Walter Isaacson, didn't he, about the certain detail, mm. family details in the biography. I wonder, I think he would have been flattered by the casting... Who wouldn't be? <laughs> Who wouldn't be? But I think Sorkin does does always do quite a good job of, even though he's so fulsome and deifying, he's never afraid to show the underside of mm. people because that's part of what makes them good dramatic characters. He really likes the moments when people hit the fan. Yeah, That's something that I wonder is if it's part of his uh, working practice yeah. as well. Yeah, it's like, hey, look, you can be a jerk and be great at the same time. <laughs> Although there is that line that I've never really heard in, I don't think I've ever heard in a Sorkin work before, which which fe almost feels like a statement from the author, which is, um, uh, what, uh, Seth Rogen's character says, um, it's not binary, these being a nice person and being a great whatever and not mutually exclusive. You can do these things and not be a jerk. And that that almost undercuts any sense that, oh, it's any bad behaviour is justified if you do great things. I, I think that's Sorkin saying, no, no, it's you can, you can actually be pleasant. Um, I hope that's what he's saying anyway. A tiny pullback from the typical genius biopic. Mm. All right, it is the end of December, which means it's time to look back at the year that was and compare notes on our favourite films of the year. Sophie, what were your five highlights of 2015? I'm going to go with UK theatrical releases, mm -hmm. just as a way of organising my brain. And starting in January, I'm going to put Selma 
at the top of my list, Ava DuVernay's biopic of Martin Luther King. Uh, again, reinventing the biopic by focusing on a really narrow slice of an epic life uh, and telling the story on a really broad canvas with dozens of supporting characters, um, fantastic, speaking of Aaron Sorkin, fantastic dialogue scenes where you're just marvelling at how these characters are negotiating with each other, and just such an important message delivered without ever being preachy or didactic, just really fully felt. I spent three months listening to the soundtrack on repeat um, for inspiration, and it just, it, it worked its way into my heart. I saw it three times, and I'd expected the first time I saw it just to think, you know, this is really worthy and well done, but I've, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the performances, I fell in love with the atmosphere, and I fell in love with the emergence of, I think, a really serious American filmmaker who is going to be with us and will win that Best Director Oscar. That's my prediction. Yep. Not in 2016, but it's going to come. So that Sun was my first one, and then I would put sort of... I'm not going to rank the next four, mm -hmm. but... Uh, oh, Selma was number one. Selma was number one. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I don't... I can't even remember what months these came out. This is the problem of seeing things at festivals and press screenings, mm. is everything gets really mushed up. Um, so, I'm going to backtrack into what is really a blast from the past uh, for you, Lee, which is 52 Tuesdays. Oh, yep. First seen in the UK in, in 2013, I think, at... Um, Flair, BFI Flair, the Lesbian and Gay Film Festival, and released this summer. Uh, the fantastic Sophie Hyde came to the UK with Tilda Cobb and Hervey, and they travelled around and Instagram pictures of each other falling asleep drunk on the train. <laughs> and it was just, it wasn't a bit a big release in the sense of reaching lots of cinemas, but it was a really special release. Peccadillo, who are the LGBT distributor in the UK, put on a really great tour for them, and I think it just really reached audiences who were incredibly touched by it lots mm. of sold out screenings and for me it's just a statement about a new kind of filmmaking i've not seen a film that was made like that over a year working on tuesdays working with a small cast to develop the story and it just feels like the beginning uh, of something for me um super excited to see what happens next which two so two films both by Women directors who I think are, are making their mark, they're already being considered auteurs, but big statements from both of them. So Girlhood from Celine Sciamma. Mm -hmm. uh, did that come out in Australia this year? I, I forget. I know it played at a festival. Um, I literally watched it on the plane over here. <laughs> so I can't imagine watching that film on the plane because you just, that cinematography is just yeah. epic. You want to see it really big. And at the same time, it's telling a really intimate story. Mm. Um, I interviewed Celine Scammer. We smoked out the window of the hotel like bad girls. Uh, and she told me that she'd originally planned it as a TV series. Having worked right. on uh, Les Revenants, The Return, mm -hmm. she really wants to get into doing long form TV. So if you watch the film, it does have this episodic structure. Um, and it's a very intimate story. Um, very exciting. First major French film with four black female leads mm -hmm. um, who were non-professional actors. And just a really, I think, urgent film told in the most dynamic, exciting way. Um, fantastic use of music, fantastic use of Paris, a Paris people don't usually see, mm -hmm. and a really open ending that just... I really want her to revisit it as a TV yeah. show to come back and find out what happened to those happens to those characters, and hopefully it's not um, a tragic story. She's been criticised for telling a tragic story about young black women and their lack of possibilities, but I think there's hope mm. at the end of that film. 
I thought um, it had a great ending. I really, great yeah. So tantalising and, and full of presence mm. and massive props to the, the young actors in that film as well. I hope they all carry on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and tell their own stories. Uh, and the the film that I would sort of pair with that really weirdly is The Falling by Carol Morley, about a very different kind of girl gang, mm-hmm. uh, set in the early 1960s in Oxfordshire, uh, about a group of girls who are affected by mass hysteria, um, which is now known as mass psychogenic illness. After the death uh, of one of them, they all begin fainting and having hysterical episodes with no medical cause and really the cause is sort of the oppressive state and patriarchy and they're all coming to consciousness but it's just made in the most gorgeous way you never really the film never really tells you why it's happening you can interpret all different reasons for it it looks wonderful shot by Agnes Goddard Claire Denis regular Mm. um, cinematographer and with a soundtrack composed by Tracy Thorne Uh, it's just really mysterious there's not many films that you see I think in contemporary cinema that have real mystery um, and that manage that like Lucille Hedger-Halilovich's debut Innocence, that mixture of being incredibly passionate and full of affect but really intelligent as well. There's something really fascinating going on behind it. So Cillian mm. Scammer uh, and Carol Morley, two directors I've been you know watching for a while now and I thought okay, this is it. They've made their stamp and mm. I think they're both going to go on to big things. Oh, and then cool. finally, from a, a world master, Abderrahman Sisako's film Timbuktu, a co-production between him and, because Malian cinema is currently a non-existent phenomenon, and uh, French state funding, filmed in Burkina Faso and made hot on the heels of um, the Islamist invasion of Mali and telling the story uh, of what happened to one of the world's great cultural cap- capitals, Timbuktu. Did you catch this one, Lee? I didn't, no. Again, and... I will, though. Just outstanding use of music. That's yeah. something that I've really been compelled by this year, like really listening to films. So Fatumatu mm. Diawara, Malian singer, playing a key role in the film as a woman who dares to sing um, in a city under... Um, Islamist control and just very simple almost parable like story about resistance um, and about the humanity of um, everyone on both sides and this kind of crisis situation Um, I weirdly watched it in a screen next door a screen that was playing Mad Max Fury Mm. Road and ended up thinking in parallel about these two films about the desert Right. in the desert about rebels fighting back about the strength of women um, in oppressed communities and Timbuktu just won, won out for me <laughs> <laughs> sorry I, I know I, this apparently makes me a terrible feminist but uh, yeah that's my five wow well this is yeah I'm going to have to catch up on all the ones I didn't see from that list, there are well the two really that I didn't see from that list. I've and it reminds me that this was a year where I saw very little. My my scope was uh, 2015. I really did not see as much as I normally see. Um, I usually hit the film festivals or at least one big film festival pretty hard and see as much obscure international just things that will never get a release uh, as I could. And um, I wasn't really able to do that uh, this year, which was. Disappointing. So my my uh, my list is somewhat standard, I would say, but it also does. Uh, it's the Australian release date thing. So I have a, a few of last year's on there as well. Uh, beginning with number five, uh, Inherent Vice, uh, which we got in January in Australia, and 
yeah, I just love the uh, the the slack and noir um, <laughs> subgenre. It's a very much the the Big Lebowski long goodbye idea of somebody who doesn't really seem like they have the temperament to solve a mystery, who is sort of tasked with solving the mystery. And I, and what I like is that for a, for a mystery, the actual mystery itself, the plot seems pushed to the background. Like that, it's not not relevant. You want to when you're watching a mystery, you want a certain mood. You want to feel like you're back in this time and place in the in the 70s and you want to spend time with this character and the, the people he encounters. And so it, it seemed like a massive production geared towards making you feel like you were watching a film noir rather than actually being a film noir. And then, yeah, that I really enjoyed that. Number four, uh, Pixar's Inside Out. Controversial. Controversial. Is it? I thought, is this not... One of my biggest disappointments in 2015. Really? Yeah. Really? Okay, because this is um, these uh, it's it's I think their best film in years, and almost possibly my favorite of their films. Um, I I just found it so uh, inventive and imaginative, and so unlike anything I've seen before in a kids' film, from its aesthetic and the imagination of the of, of the imagination, really. Um, but also down to the message it's telling, which is that. Uh, a, a kid's film promoting the, the idea and usefulness of being sad is, I think, a very complex idea. And, and if kids' films are supposed to teach kids to deal with the real world and with all the things they'll be facing, this is probably the most essential one I've, I've ever seen. And, yeah, and I laughed and I cried, which are the most important things. Uh, number three, Selma. Yay! Yes, I, I adore this film. I adore the way it was made. I, I love that DuVernay found the midpoint between uh, the big, sweeping, beautifully made Oscar bait biopic, which I love, and the gritty handheld This Is How It Happened biopic, which I also love. And it was such... It was a film about process, which I love, and I love the minutiae, which is usually the, 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 the thing that always gets swept aside. You know, these are all about... You think you're going to tell a film about Martin Luther King, it's going to be about the grand ideas. And it is. But it's also about the minutiae of, we know that this whole thing could turn on a dime, and if we do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing, we have to strategize like crazy to make sure that our message gets across in the right way. Because if we bank left instead of banking right, then the whole thing will go off the tracks. And I loved that this feels like one of the most accurate portrayals of social change in getting into that nitty-gritty. I just, I love that about it. Number two is uh, Joshua Oppenheimer's The Look of Silence, which uh, to me is possibly a superior film to The Act of Killing. I love The Act of Killing, but The Look of Silence, which basically tells the the same general story, but from the point of view of the victims instead of the perpetrators, it's so cinematic in that just, you, you almost can't believe that the idea of this actual optometrist who goes door to door helping people with their vision is also helping people to see the past and to see their place in it. It's the, it's a metaphor that would almost be too intense for a fiction film. And so for a documentary, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And the way these people deal with this systemic trauma, I just, I just think it's an amazing piece of cinema. And number one, I, you, you know what's coming. I know what's coming. Mad Max Fury Road. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I, I, I dislike being predictable, but the alternative was not putting Mad Max Fury Road as number one, and that didn't even make any sense to me. Like, 
why would I not do that? It was, yeah, it, it's, it, God, I, I know how this sounds. It was pure cinema to me, and it was such a, a visceral, exciting thrill ride that had social progression in there. I mean, I think that's the idea. Like, we look back at, I don't know if it actually was controversial or whether it was just a small group uh, that, that got blown up in the media, but the idea of um, fanboys having a problem with Star Wars having... Uh, a black character and a woman character, because those things are, I mean, you just wouldn't see them in real life. And there seemed to be a similar, uh, similar pushback to the idea that Fury Road was a feminist film. But I think it works on an aesthetic level in that you're seeing something we haven't seen in mainstream cinema before. And I mean, forget about the, the social importance of that just on a purely show me something I haven't seen before. On that level, it's refreshing and new and exciting, uh, just on a completely superficial level. And there's this thing where, where I think we look back and idealise these films from the past, and when you actually go to watch them, they're not quite as good as our memories of them. And I think what George Miller has done is made the Mad Max film that we all remember. Like, they, they are great films. I love re-watching, you know, particularly the second film, because I think it is a truly great film. But there's something about this film which is, it feels like uh, the idealised memory of a film where everything is perfect. And that was, uh, that was my number one film of the year. That was my top five. That was great, yeah. Mm. I'm glad that we at least had one film in common. Yes, that's, uh, that's very promising. And I feel ashamed that I don't have a documentary on my list. I'm going to have mm. to go back and revise it. <laughs> um, when I did the sight and sound list, I did have Kim Longinoso's Dreamcatcher on there, but... I guess because I was looking at theatrical releases. I don't know. Anyway, shout out to Dreamcatcher, fantastic documentary by Kim Longinoso, um, which I think is still on the BBC iPlayer for our UK listeners, and I have no mm. idea whether it was released in Australia. Uh, statistically not. <laughs> we just we get very little back right. home. Oh, and I will say that there is uh, more. If you go to the website, if you go to hell is for hyphenates, dot com slash blog uh you will see all of the blog posts we do including our wrap-up of 2015 which includes uh the best of lists from as many previous hyphenates as as we could find they'll be updated as we uh, as we locate them all and also our uh, now traditional we started last year uh look back at uh at what we got out of the podcast for the year like our favorite new discoveries and so uh, and because of the transition, it is uh, uh, Sophie, Paul, and myself, the three of us, all looking back at our various hyphenates experiences. So, uh, so do go and check that out because it's uh, everyone loves a year wrap, yearly wrap up, and there's even more wrapping up. I like there. to think of Paul and I as kind of a hyphenate, Sophie, Paul, a bit like the Doctor Donna. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, Sophie, Paul. I could, I could work with that. All right, for this month's Filmmaker of the Month, without a guest to choose for us, we have dipped into the well of the mini-hyphenates, because there is one mini-hyphenate in particular, uh, and by the way, that term, for those unfamiliar, refers to a filmmaker who has made five or fewer films, which is usually a filmmaker we don't... We, we try to uh, uh, encourage guests not to choose, and then we thought, well, if we're encouraging them not to choose those... Uh, filmmakers, then when are we ever going to talk about them? So, the semi-regular mini-hyphenate segment is now the focus, uh, and we have gone with Jacques Brel. Jacques Brel? Jacques Brel, yes. He made films? He did. You may know him as the popular Belgian singer, 
but uh, yes, he was uh, he was actually introduced to me as a filmmaker. I was uh, I was woefully ignorant of his music, and uh, I got shown his film La Far West, and thought it was absolutely incredible. And then discovered most people just know him as a singer. So Sophie, I presume you know him as a singer. What I, what is he like as a uh, as a musician? As a what is his place in history? I wouldn't say I could speak authoritatively to that, but he um, sung chansons, so mm. singer-songwriter music, some traditional music, um, associated with cabaret culture. Um, he was known for having a kind of very slightly reedy voice with, with a great deal of passion that was considered to be very authentic. Um, his songs are often coming straight out of bar culture, out of the sort of underworld of... Uh, Brussels and Paris and Marseille, songs that are particularly associated with uh, sailors and brothels. So a slightly romanticised view of the the criminal underworld, love songs, but generally tragic love songs. And when he moves into acting in film, he's cast in roles that really reflect his association with this underworld. He generally plays criminals, he plays um, very seductive figures. He, in fact, once appeared in a film with Johnny Hallyday. Uh, a a two-for-one there. He generally plays characters who are wrongly imprisoned, so very romantic, uh, tragic figures. But when he comes to making his own films, he really reverses this with two characters who are childlike dreamers, Mm. who are very innocent, who are committed to the imagination and all of its wonders, who fall in love in incredibly tender and non-sexual ways, which are the total opposite of the persona associated with Brel as a rebel and a lover and a fighter, which I think is really fascinating. It's, it's also weird for me hearing, because I only know those two films he directed. I haven't seen these other films. I'm not familiar with that persona he, he, he sort of created through his music. So the uh, thinking of him as this, you know, member of the criminal underworld, a seductive figure in, embroiled in, you know, this sort of the, the mean streets or whatever... Uh, is is very funny to me because he's such a uh, he comes across as such a thoughtful, funny, gentle uh, uh, person in the films he he directs, which he also stars in, which are uh, Franz and Le Far West. Nineteen seventy one, Franz, uh, mm-hmm. and then nineteen seventy three, Le Far West. So mm-hmm. a very productive few years for him. In fact, in sixty seven, he got he gone from really being a bar singer in the early 60s who could barely, you know, raise the money to look after his family to being internationally successful, playing huge venues in France and around Europe. Mm. And it just, it overwhelmed him. And in 67, he decided he would never play a live solo show again and that he was going to redirect his life. So he appeared in handful of uh, French films, sort of popular French films, none of the great sort of new wave auteurs that mm. you might think, ah, I want to work with Jacques Pearl. Although uh, Michel Piccoli, who worked on a number of Jacques Demy films, has given a credit and a thanks on uh, Le Far West. So he obviously knew right. the the new wave scene. But interestingly for Le, Le Far West, he uh, taught himself to fly. He learned to fly a plane and engaged in these various sort of adventurish Antoine de Saint-Exubery mm. type, uh, type lifestyle choices before moving to um, Polynesia, which is where he died. So wow. not the sort of romantic, tragic criminal story you necessarily expect, although he did die young, which is probably why he only made two films. The mm. fact that they were both commercial massive flops, mm. uh, even Le Far West, which was um, nominated for a Palme d'Or, 
at Cannes uh, probably didn't help. Yeah, and they're not the type of film you expect from a uh, singer turned filmmaker. They're not, you know, vanity projects. They're not the type of films you expect from anyone. (laughs) That is true. That is very true. They're so strange. They're so strange. The only way that I can think about Franz is it's a lost Alain René, Alan Eggborn adaptation Mm -hmm. that somehow translated itself back. 40 years from you know this decade of the 20th century to 1971 it's a it's a farce but not the kind of bedroom french farce that you might expect from that it's very philosophical it touches on colonialism it touches on the rivalry between belgium and france it's really a battle of the sexes Mm. film um and it's in a weird way, a sort of version of L'Etranger, like it's a very existentialist film. It has a lot of shots that quote from Jean Renoir, these very framed impressionist. Um, he loves these shots of people in a line, sort of mm. progressing across a beach or progressing across mountains. Yeah, right. It's like this digest of French cinema made by someone who's obviously seen a lot of films and been on a lot of sets and is really confident, but it's not like anything else I've ever seen. Mm. Which is certainly the the feeling I got when I, you know, years ago when I was sat down and shown La Far West. Because it's, I mean, I don't even know how you'd describe it. It starts with, it's in modern day, is it France? Is it Belgium. F- it's, it's Belgium, sorry. It's, yeah, modern day Belgium where a guy dressed as a cowboy meets a guy dressed as a prospector. And then they just start hanging out together. And as they go across the land, they pick up, a whole bunch of characters who just sort of latch onto them, all these strange, uh, distinct, uh, costumed characters. And no one really remarks upon the fact that they're, they're completely anachronistic, but they're all searching for this mythical uh, Shangri-La type, type location. They're, they're heading west. They're trying to find this location where they can all prosper and, and be happy. And immediately, because of the, the, the juxtaposition of these, you know, the cowboy outfit and the, uh, the Native American headdress and, the, and the, pro- the old prospector with, you know, they're walking along the road and there are cars going past, it's, it immediately makes you think, all right, well, what is this? What, what the hell is this film meant to be? And then you get to the end and you're like, ah, no, what the hell is this film meant to be? I mean... It- What I'll say about Le Far West is it makes Franz look pretty ordinary. Mm. After you, because I watched them in the in the historical order because I'm nerdy that way. Um, And while I was watching Franz, I was just going, I I have no frame of reference for this. Okay, it's a little bit farcical. It's a little bit Renoir. It's um, you know, it has this little bit of Camus thrown in. It's it's very sort of Franco-Belgian. It's very dry. Mm. It's a social comedy about um, recuperating civil service workers. And it's about a thousand times funnier than, than that sounds, particularly because Brel plays um, a hopelessly clumsy, mother-controlled, meek, mild tax collector mm. who is a terrible singer. There's only one scene where he sings, which is a New Year's party, uh, where he's got incredibly drunk. He's wearing a fake nose sticking out of his head, very much like a cuckold's horn. Mm. Uh, well, and he's peeing as well. Like, it couldn't yeah. be more of a cock joke if it tried. <laughs> and he's singing to this really ugly stuffed toy that he's won in this small town raffle. And that's 
that's it for the mm. Jacques Brel of the film. But he's he's this sort of meek, mild-mannered civil servant who actually turns out to have been a mercenary uh, in the Congo, a Belgian mercenary um, engaged in this sort of very violent, not very well-known battle, which I also went and looked up because I'm a nerd, um, where the Belgian army backed Katanga becoming a separate state when Lumumba took over the Republic of Congo um, to protect their industrial interests because Katanga is the area where all the really wealthy gold mines were and all of the Belgian infrastructure. So it was kind of this hidden secret European colonial project and the Belgian army and mercenaries went over to sort of police it and it was very violent and it was very confusing. Um, and you're never really sure with this character, Leon, is he fantasizing about this or did he really take part in it? And that's part of the the film's kind of beauty is that you're never really sure the whole thing could be a dream. But then you get into the far west and it begins with a guy in a, a, a cowboy outfit, as Lee said, walking through these fields singing. And then it cuts and shows, you know, it's a he's a street singer who's trying to collect money hopelessly but the whole film could well be Jacques' fantasy mm. of gathering together all these people who want to be in a western and play different roles there's the mexican the native american um the post guy like the u.s post guy on the bicycle oh, yeah, yeah. um and they're all played by the same actors who are in france so it has this weird feeling that the characters from france have formed an amdram society <laughs> and come to perform this strange don quixote-esque uh, and at one point he calls his uh his prospective friend sancho and he's like, i'm not sancho i'm gabriel <laughs> what, what are you talking about um this really bizarre like is he indulging in the idea that westerns are all the most perfect form of film fantasy is he satirizing that like i can't imagine ever watching a western again after watching the foul west because <laughs> it just shows up what a performance it is yeah. um it, it sort of satirizes belgian colonialism and the belgian state which much like the belgian government now is shown to be one man playing all the roles and then in one of the like funniest shots i think i've ever seen in the film the belgian government turns out to be like a bunch of guys who've basically being Miss Havishamed. Yeah. <laughs> covered in cobwebs. Starts and... with a sort of crane shot and as it comes down you see they're all covered in cobwebs <laughs> sitting in this grand room basically asleep. So there's a real there's this really sort of black social comedy there and mm. um, Bile turns out to have really natural sort of vaudevillian comic timing in France he's always falling over um, and being made a twit of like he's always the butt of the joke and then in Le Far West he's just constantly bemused by everything he's you know a real um Walter Mitty character mm. he is and they're such interesting films because he's clearly got a lot to say about the state of the world it's not just I mean like I was saying before about the vanity project it's not just look I can be a mo this type of movie star and, and here's the scene where I sing because I know you all like that it's he's playing incredibly flawed strange characters and so if that's the period where he was rejecting his own popularity, then the fact that he that he's sort of talking about these these guys who are in a fantasy world who are rejecting the world around them is is quite interesting in itself. But also the fact, more than anything, that they're really entertaining. Like I, I can see why they were flops. They're not easy sells, even in the nineteen seventies, where you kind of think that everything would have been an easy sell because culture was so weird then but they're so damn entertaining uh he's got a real comic flair and he's got a real 
uh, a flair for the exciting and and like I mean the shot the, the shot in the far west where I don't think they could have faked it right the one where the, the silo basically falls down on top of him and explodes I mean that actually happened like I'm kind of surprised he survived that and so he he's definitely good at the adrenaline the the, the you know the exciting the funny and um it is a shame that we that we really only got two films from him because I mean where would he have gone if he had developed these skills wow um it's kind of hard to speculate it's hard that, to speculate but, I, but part of what interests me about them is they they sort of come in the middle between two really well-known sort of blocks of french cinema of mm. the the new wave mm, right. um in the late 50s early 60s all these very innovative directors who are messing around with junk hearts and time and mm. all of this and you think surely brel would have been attracted to that and you could sort of see him in a, in a Godard film and there is a car and helicopter chase actually in Le Far West which you could sort of imagine Godard really having got behind um, and then the, you know the kind of 80s the Luc Besson and that kind of hard sexy French mm, cinema right. where you know again you could sort of imagine him had he lived that that's kind of cinema drawing on his star power mm. they're such personal projects like they don't really belong to their time mm. in any way and they seem very interlinked there's a moment in franz where you see the main character who is not called franz yeah. who, who is called leon uh sitting in bed in his pajamas revealing his love for leonie the female character to his pigeon Mm. We should say that Leon is a pigeon fancier, and on his bedside table is a book called Far West. I, I saw that, yeah. Ha! We are both cinephiles. <laughs> Sharp-eyed cinephiles. The new podcast. Um, so they, they clearly seem to arise out of his own experience growing up in Belgium, you know, the the small town, the civil service, and then what he dreamed that he might become as a singer. And it's interesting that he's this kind of man in black figure in the Far West who seems to parallel Johnny Cash in some ways, but then send up all of those mm. um, those assumptions as well. So I, maybe he those were just the two films that he had to make. And he had all these different adventures in his life as a singer, as an aviator. Mm. I think he does his own helicopter stunt in the Far West as well. You certainly see him landing yeah. in the graveyard and walking away. I would like to see, you know, Drake or Justin Bieber <laughs> do that. <laughs> Can you imagine the insurance? And he also composed and co-composed the music for the films mm. with someone Rauber, Francois Rauber, of course, Francois Rauber. And yeah. they'd started composing on the first together on the first film he acted in, which uh, in English is called Risky Business. Mm -hmm. I wonder who stole that title. <laughs> and there is a CD available of the, their music from the films they worked on, not only the ones that Brel directed and co-wrote with Paul Andriotta, but subsequent films that he made in France as well. And I think there's a bit of a cult following for their musical project, mm. which I, makes a lot of references to popular opera, apparently, according to the thing I read on the I'm internet. I'm not as familiar with Belgian opera as I perhaps should be. Uh, well, I think there's a bit of Rossini oh, in okay. the Far West who wrote The, Gold, the yeah, Girl yeah. of the Golden West. And it, that's probably the closest thing I can imagine to mm. the Far West is like this European imaginary of the Far West on the opera stage. Like it's not even spaghetti Western or, yeah. you know, nougat Western or whatever. It's just... I know, you know, um, dressing up as cowboys and Indians is hugely popular in Germany. Mm. That's something that has carried on since before the 
First World War, wow. just the massive popularity of American cowboy novels. But I didn't, I don't, so I don't know whether that's also super popular in Belgium or it's some kind of comment on German racism. Who knows? That's part of the mystery of these films. Like, not very much has been written about them. Mm. Brel died at 49. He didn't really have time to revisit them or make any more. According to his daughter, he was already signing letters from the old man when he was in his early 40s. So that he. Part of Le Far West is about someone who romanticises childhood. Yeah. The the main song is all about how, you know, if adults knew what children knew, they would ban children, which is kind of a, a bit like Inside Out, you know, the idea that the imagination is is all-powerful, mm. although it doesn't have such a happy, happy ending. <laughs> it's a great ending. He knows how to end these films. Like, yeah. Yeah, that was... Uh, the ending of Franz was, uh, was quite incredible. Uh, on, on many different levels. Obviously, we won't spoil it here, because I'm guessing most people haven't seen Franz yet, uh, which is fair enough, because it's uh, they're very obscure films. You can find Franz on YouTube. Mm -hmm. I also just thought they're really fantastically shot films. I yes. mean, the man loves a helicopter shot. <laughs> he loves looking at this very flat sort of northern French Belgian coastline around mm. Brugge from the sky and it does look amazing and you can sort of see while he's shooting France how he might look at these salt flats and think hmm yeah a desert could be could be imagined here uh they just they look astonishing they feel like the work of a true original and not someone who's trying to emulate anyone not someone who's even railing against a type of cinema which is how so much I mean it's how we got you know, Italian neorealism. Uh, everything's a reaction. And this just feels like somebody who has something deep within themselves they want to say and just a way to say it. The way David Lynch feels like he's just making David Lynch films. You know, the, the, this is my worldview and this is how I express it. Uh, I don't know how to do it any other way. That That's what Brel feels like. That's why I find him such a striking filmmaker with only two films to his name and, and someone that, that just needs to be discussed more I think. A lot of cinephiles would get a lot out of him today. The way that, that cinema is now, maybe there was a reason his films weren't ready to be appreciated in the 70s and maybe we're ready for them now. Yeah, as cinema is democratised and we're seeing more filmmakers on the one hand making those kind of machined film school films and on the other hand more people having access to technology to make films the way they want to make them and mm. You know, people like Sophie Hyde making films that are so sui generis. I think there is a moment where people are hungry to see people who are self-taught auteurs, mm. who just have a story to tell. They're not making films because it's a job, but because it's the next stage in, in how they're envisioning themselves. And this goes back to the point about him not writing film star roles for himself, but this, this kind of very gentle comedy where the tone shifts and gets dark and then it gets lighter and you're never really sure where you are. A bit like in his music. Yeah, I think, you know, Le Foul West before Hateful Eight. Yeah. Double that, bill. That's a hell of a double. Let's do it. <laughs> So that I think leads us into 2016. Yes, 2016 is going to be uh, it's going to be pretty exciting. It's going to be interesting to uh, to view films from the other side of the world, just on a personal level. I have one word for 2016. What's that? Ghostbusters. Yes, <laughs> that is definitely one of the. Uh, I would say it's a it's a safe bet we'll be covering that. I would think so. Excellent. All right. Well, that's that's 2015. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. See you all in 2016. De chrysanthème en 
chrysanthème Chaque fois plus solitaire 